Well, good morning, everyone. If you would be turning open your Bibles to John chapter 19. Today is Palm Sunday to remind you of the event that took place when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem for the last week of his time here on earth. Pardon me while I adjust. Let's see, I don't have that hissing sound when I say my S's. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he instructs two of his disciples to go and get uh, a donkey that he would ride into Jerusalem on. And typically, a king coming back to uh, his or her town or kingdom would rejoice and have a triumphal entry going into that town, but typically on a horse. But Jesus instructs his disciples to get a donkey. It says a foal, a beast of burden that he's riding in on. And as he and his disciples put cloaks on the donkey and he sits on there and they're riding into Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was set high, so they're actually coming up to Jerusalem. That's why in Scripture, let's go up to Jerusalem takes place because it was set up high. So as they're going, people are coming out and putting their own cloaks on the ground and they're taking palm branches off the trees and laying them on the ground to, to have a pathway for the king. And they're shouting to their Messiah, their king, Hosanna to the son of David. But what many of those people are anticipating is that this Jesus, this king, is now going to come and establish his kingdom by force. Not realizing that as he's going, he really is going to experience the darkness for their sins, that they're, Hosanna to the son of David, not realizing you're going to die. But they're not even realizing that riding on this donkey, he's actually demonstrating the meekness with which he'll go to the cross with as the penalty for our sins. So I don't know if they really understood what was coming that Friday as he hung on that cross and and today signifying that later on in the week when Jesus would hang in that darkness, he who dwells in unapproachable light come and experience our darkness so that we might experience light. Well, that brings us to John 19. What we've sought to do this month is to have some, uh, some messages out of John 19 for, it's, this is, uh, and, and Matt, a few weeks ago when he described, these are messages, and John 19 is about Jesus experiencing that darkness for us. And we will spend eternity discovering all that happened in John 19 and 20. An all eternity. So it's very difficult for us to spend about 45 minutes trying to figure out something for us today. But we trust the Lord has that for us. But we have been led well up to this point by Matt and Peter and their messages. And we come to verse 34 of John 19. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Even this morning, I don't know if you realized that when we sing a lot of our songs, we're singing about blood. And I think, I, I, don't, I don't, I've really tried to figure this out, 
this week, but not even just this week, trying to figure out why is it? You know, because blood is an aversion, right? Typical responses to blood are passing out, vomiting, or running away. That's what happens when we see blood. A child's bleeding, all of a sudden, a parent, oh, now I need to pay attention. Okay, there's, if you were like me and having a nurse for a mom growing up, unless there was blood, you're still going to school. You're bleeding? No, you're going to school. And people who like blood, they're usually a little bit off. We, we, we're concerned about those people. We want them to see somebody to talk about it. But yet, when we come together for worship so often, we are singing about blood. And we are rejoicing in the blood that was shed for us. I wonder if somebody coming in here, if we are all weirded out by the fact that people are raising their hands and stuff the first time we experienced that, and I was the same way, just kind of looking around like this. I had no idea what was being sung. What are these people doing around here? But let's, let's think of somebody who has no idea. You know, our culture here in this city, we know about Jesus. We know about the Lenten season. We know about Jesus dying on the cross, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. We know that, pretty much. But let's say we have no idea about that. We come into a place where they're singing and raising their hands to wash me in the blood, which we sung this morning. I wonder if they would think we're a bit off. But there's, there's an aspect to, to this celebration of blood that we rejoice in because we found something deeper and a, a significance that even the Apostle John records for us in this chapter saying there's a purpose of why he's recording this aspect of Jesus being on the cross. He's dead. And now he tells us of a soldier that comes and pierces his side and really pierces up through here all the way to the heart. And actually, uh, medically, this could be a factor that they, when they pierced up into that heart, that the, the, now I forgot the name of that sac, the pericardium, is that right? I'm turning to my mother, the nurse, to ask about that. The pericardium is a, is a water sac around the heart. So piercing up through that, actually piercing his heart, and then it's showing forth the blood and the water mixed with it. We don't know how much came out. We don't know that. But I think what the Apostle John here is letting us know is there is an aspect of this happening in the darkness that has a spiritual and heavenly significance that affects us every single day. And that's what we hope to discover as we uh, heard from Matt's sermon that, that God, Jesus coming and experiencing our death on the cross has taken and averted. He absorbed all of God's wrath toward our sins and uh, he's averted God's wrath so we're not the subject of his wrath anymore. And Peter's sermon about really being redeemed and purchased back from the slavery and domination and tyranny of sin that we might live life the way God wants us to. And here we come to this point where there's, there's another aspect of the cross we get to look into. There's another aspect that we get to really just ask the Savior for more understanding so we can experience more awe and more amazement and more glory because God's looking to communicate something with this and that's what we're going to and ask his help 
to help us understand what he's communicating. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your great and precious promises, one of which is that the Spirit is with us to bring illumination to all that your word contains. Jesus, you sent your Spirit so we would understand you. Holy Spirit, we ask you now for understanding. We ask you for illumination. Turn on lights for us so we can see you and and we can stand in awe yet again. But Lord, we ask very particularly that you would give us specific application of how when we stand in awe, we're able to live differently and that affect our days and the days of those around us. Please, we need your help, Lord, and we thank you for the promise of your help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first thing that we'll consider really is that the blood and water that come out from Jesus confirm the reality of Jesus. More specifically, that Jesus really was a man. He was a man who experienced the penalty of our sin and our death on that cross. And this is not, this wasn't something, God didn't come uh, as a man and potentially just lose consciousness for a while. He really was a man with blood inside of his body going on. And this also confirms that he really died. He died on that cross. Hebrews 2.9 say says that he tasted death for us. And as this javelin about four feet long was pierced in his side, it reveals the humanity of Christ, the death that he died but also there, throughout church history, there was, there's been a theory of the fact that Jesus, two theories, competing ones, that Jesus swooned. He lost consciousness during this part on the cross, but really never did die. That's how he was able to be raised from the dead Easter Sunday. Another one, thinking about that, uh, Jesus left, somehow the God in Jesus left him right before he experienced all of this brutality. Now, I think, I would wonder, but I think that the, the focus of those two uh, or, or explanations of what's happening in John 19 in this part with blood and water flowing is I think people are trying to preserve the godness of God. That he's so good, he's so perfect, he's so God, that why would he do this? Why would he subject himself to this so God has to be God and we have to maintain that godness so somehow maybe he was just unconscious maybe he just God left him and then Jesus the man experienced all of this but when we look at that Jesus really was God he really was a man and he really did die you know what it does for us it heightens the amazement that yes God is too good for this yet he came and he died in our place, for us. It is too marvelous. It is so good, and yet we get to see it and understand it all the more. The blood and water that come from Jesus, I think, confirm that Jesus really was the Passover lamb. When a lamb was being sacrificed, it was, there were some very, uh, very specific laws in the first five books of the New Testament, the, the the law that it's called, where Leviticus particularly saying that any time a sacrifice is brought, the legs were not to be broken. 
It had to be a healthy lamb. Couldn't be a maimed or tainted lamb. In Malachi, Malachi is correcting the people of God, Israel, for bringing these feeble and they're bringing the worst of the lambs, not the best. There's, the, the Old Testament is preserving something in that. It's preserving something because it's pointing to the perfect sacrificial Passover lamb. Now, we have... Uh, Actually, Numbers 9.12 says that the sacrifice could not have broken bones. But as they come to Jesus, they recognize in the verses right before this, we're told that they come to Jesus and they recognize that they were already dead. And even Kurt alluded to this last week, I believe, that when, when a man was hanging on the cross, he could push himself up. Sometimes there was a seat that he could be able to sit on as he was. Now, most uh, men up there were tied. Only the worst criminals were nailed. And here, our Savior is nailed there. But what they would do is they would have an ability to push themselves up in order to breathe. But to hasten the death, and this is the bizarreness of uh, Jewish law, the Pharisees trying to honor God so much with their laws, that the Roman authorities, they didn't want anybody to be on the cross after sunset because it was the start of the next day, which would have been the Sabbath, and that's the Passover. So they, they worked it out with the Romans. Hey, can we still keep our law that we don't do any work on the Sabbath because if we bury him, that's work on the Sabbath. So can we bury him earlier, which means can you kill him a little sooner? And they did. They killed them by breaking their legs. How excruciating could that be? You're already on the cross. Breaking the legs so that you can't lift yourself back up to breathe. So you actually die from asphyxiation. You suffocate to death. Well, they come to Jesus. They most probably broke the legs of the two that were on either side of Christ. And then they come to him and they recognized he's already dead. And they pierce him. Do you know what they used to do? The sacrificial lambs, the Passover lamb? They would spear the lamb all the way through, from the mouth all the way through the body to ensure death. We have a picture all up to this of this perfect Passover lamb. The blood and water that flow from Christ is the testimony that he accomplished what he came to do. And all that he was saying he would do. And this blood and water that come out provide a visible display of a heavenly reality. And God lets us in on this. And in scripture, uh, in the Old Testament specifically, we find many references to blood. They're all over the place. And, and actually, the blood was used to cleanse things and purify things. And when... Uh, when Moses came, he, he gets the dimensions for the tabernacle up on the mountain with God, Mount Sinai. He comes down, and then God says, build all this stuff, and now this is what we're going to do. We're going to cleanse it and purify it so we can use it now. And actually, we find recorded that all in, in Leviticus as well as in... Well, Leviticus is a blood book because we have, you have uh, sacrifices all over the place. But in Exodus, we also find that there was a sacrifice in the... The high priest uh, for the tabernacle would dip his finger in the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it like this on all the utensils that were used, all the, the furniture in the tabernacle. And last, last year, if you remember our vacation Bible school, we did the temple. And a lot of those pieces, particularly the Ark of the Covenant, was from the tabernacle. So you had really, especially the, the altar of sacrifice, last year our presentation was very clean and nice. And we chose to make it clean and nice because I actually said I wouldn't want to frighten the children. Because in reality, it was all covered in blood. All of it covered in blood because that was the purification of it. Interestingly, the law, the Ten Commandments, 
sprinkled with blood and water. We find in Hebrews, it's sprinkled with blood and water. There's a purification happening. Aaron himself, Moses, sprinkles blood on the garments of Aaron. So every time the high priest went in to offer his service, he has, he has blood. Peter's gotten a hold of him. He's got red all over himself. It's very interesting to think about because all the pictures that we see, everything's nice and clean and great. But it's, this is a bloody affair. Why? I think to let us know our sin is very serious. God's holiness is very serious, but also the shedding of his blood provides a cleansing and a purification for us. It cleanses all those who would be saved from God's wrath and and experience life for and with him. The blood and water that come from Jesus let us know that a relationship with God has been restored to us. And how do we know this? Because we just, okay, you got all that just from reading one verse, that blood and water came out? No. In the New Testament, we find the explanation to a lot. And, and a lot of times you'll try to f- figure out, the best way to figure out sometimes what's in the Bible and why it's there and, and the, the depth of the doctrine that's found in the life of Christ and his work is to look in the rest of the Bible. Because the Bible's its best interpreter. The Bible's its best explanation. A lot of times you'll have a New Testament story, an Old Testament story of a New Testament reality. You have an Old Testament story of a doctrine in the New Testament that we can, we can weigh those together and say, oh, now it makes sense. And the hinge always being Christ. It points to him either side. There, there's an aspect as we look at scripture that it is a, a glorious thing to look at. I this week was looking at all the scriptures that really define this from, and many of them are listed in your notes, but I just had to sit and look at all those passages and wait because they were so rich. To look at the explanation of these, and, and this isn't in your notes, you can write this in there, but Romans 6, 22 and 23, if you want to turn there quickly, This is, what, this is I read this just last night, and one of those words that uh, just jumps out at you that you read maybe a hundred times, you never knew that was there. I think we'll have that experience as we read this. Starting at verse 22 of Romans 6, but now you have been set free from sin. You've been redeemed and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the, the For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know what jumped out at me was the word fruit. You have been set free from your sin and have become slaves of God. We know this in Ephesians. This isn't of your own doing. God did it all. And the fruit you get. What fruit? Fruit that we've earned? No. Fruit that Christ has earned for us. What is that fruit? He died. The wages of sin is death. He died. But now the free gift is eternal life. Something happened in between there that I think blood and water let us in on. We get a fruit. We find out this fruit. And what is this fruit? Turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be jumping around in some scriptures. I'll let you know that. So have your hands ready to go. You see Ephesians, then you'll Philippians, then Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. This is going to reveal what's in between here, this fruit. 
that Christ purchased for us. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we have another explanation. Blood that is shed and reconcile. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This fruit that we get, this something that happens in between the death that Christ died and the life that we get, something the Bible calls reconciliation. Reconciliation is the reestablishment of an interrupted or broken relationship. Reconciliation happens with relationships. Something is severed, something's off to reconcile, to exchange hostility for a friendly relationship. So what we're finding as we look at even the definitions of these words, that reconciliation happens in the context of relationships, but also happens when something's gone wrong to sever that relationship. So we look to ourselves, Ephesians 2, 13. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We find in these two verses in, in Colossians that we, we've been separated. We were once far off. Have been, we were doing evil deeds and being brought near. And it, it begs the, the, to grapple with the understanding that, that there's a problem in our relationship with God. Now we as sinful human creatures, we don't ever think there's a problem with God. Between us and God, Right? I don't have anything against God. What am I supposed to have against God? So we should be fine, right? Isn't God great enough that he can just be fine? Well, let's find out. You know what? God, God demands that we live a holy life. He demands it. But you know how we hear, you shall be holy for I am holy. He told his people that at Mount Sinai. We hear that in the New Testament all over the place. Jesus says it himself. You must be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect how we hear that is going to indicate the motivation for how we live it. Because we can hear a very dominant and tyrannical God saying, be holy for I'm holy. Here's a rule, here's a law. You better fulfill it. Or we can hear God in his love saying, live holy for I am holy because it'll be the best thing for you. How we hear that will then dictate how we walk that out. If we're over here and we just hear somebody dominating and tyrannical, then what? We're, we're going to relate to God based on how well we're doing with him, based on our works, based on our performance. But if we hear a sense of love, and really we have that all in Scripture, when God gives his people the Ten Commandments, he said, you shall love me. First commandment, you shall love me before all the gods. What do he say right before that? I am your God who brought you out of slavery. It's an action of love. I chose you. You aren't the biggest, most numerous. You were the least, the weakest, and I set my love on you. Drawing them out and then gives, live this way. Now, he, he tells us to live that way because it really is our best life. But we are sinful. 
Find in Colossians 21 that we who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. We have the contribution of being hostile in our minds toward God. We have in us, we're doing evil deeds. Really all the time. And in our sinfulness, we ignore God's desires for our best. We ignore his desires for a holy life. And we seek out counterfeit gods that give us the illusion of what we're seeking after. They give us the illusion of peace. But our sinfulness has caused hostility now toward God and separated us from him. We even learned that from Isaiah 59 too. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Fellowship, a relationship with God is impossible because of the barrier of our sin. God, and we have to understand this, God is hostile toward sinners. We, we sometimes have a picture in our own natural mindset, natural thinking that God's just sitting around just waiting for us to come to him. I really want to give you a great life. Please come to me. Oh, you tried to do that again. Oh, oh, please come to me. Won't you? Oh, oh, um, excuse me. Uh, pardon me. No, God is saying, you want to live that way? I give it over to you. I give you over to it. Waste yourself on it. You can't hear God saying those things. But we have enough of the Bible. God opposes the proud. And whenever we're saying, God, I don't really believe that you're going to satisfy me, so I'm going to find fulfillment in this right over here. What we're saying is, God, I'm doing it my way. I'm not doing it your way. And, and the moment we do that, we become, God opposes us. We become the object of his opposition. And he's working those things, even as believers, he's working those things to bring us to humility so we cry out to him dependently. Now, Jesus comes. See, because God's demand, and we can be uh, in our own natural assessment and our own desire to be okay with God, since you know, we, don't, we don't feel the hostility because God hasn't done anything against us. You, know, you, put in, you get in a relationship with somebody and somebody has done you wrong, but they don't believe they have, creates for a difficult relationship, right? Well, we've done, we've done all the doing. God, in his goodness, has never sinned against us, so we don't feel the hostility. So we think, can't we just let the past be the past, focus on the future? Can't I just change my attitude, maybe, change a few behaviors, and God, can we then be okay? God says, no, my demand is still the same. You be holy and live a holy life. But the sin that's rooted in us is still the same as well. Something has to come to take care of that root, and we find that in the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who shed his blood to remove the hostility, to pay the penalty for our sin, to free us from the sin so rooted in us, and now to open a way for us for reconciliation with God, to be joined to him. And when this joining happens, there is a permission that's granted. Permission for what? You know what it is? Permission to be in God's presence as an object of his grace and mercy. No longer an object of his wrath, no longer an object of his hostility, but to stand in his presence, not cower in fear of judgment, which we also sang about this morning. We don't have to fear God's judgment. Jesus paid that penalty. Now we have been reconciled. A permission has been granted that, that removes this blood, this water, cleanses us from the stain of sin and joins us to God in a living relationship. That living relationship is what Jesus purchased and inaugurated 
when this blood and water came out of his side. And now we are able to stand in the presence of God without shame. Without shame over us because of our sin, because it's been removed and replaced even with the righteousness of Christ. And Jesus, Matt, said this in his prayer. Jesus shed his blood to cleanse us from all of our sins. See, there are, there are places in our hearts, in our lives, there are rooms in the, the, the house of our heart that we just don't go to for whatever reason. We have rooms that we don't go to. Well, we don't want anybody else to go to because we go to that, and that's the place of our sinful activity, and we just have the rest of the house that we want to look clean, but this one's in destruction. But we have other rooms of hurt and suffering that we close off to our lives, but yet it's never really dealt with. We have rooms of broken relationships. We have rooms of of sin patterns that we just cannot stop. And we have a Savior who has died for all of it. Everything in our past. Everything. See, we use those superlatives and all. We don't have a, give me a quantitative a hundred times. He's died for a hundred things in my past. Okay, I can count those things. All? It's all. Because in our minds, in our feeble minds, I think we, we're, we just leave things off. We don't think of everything. And God, I... I Part of the, the cleansing process for us is that when we go through suffering, when we go through being a victim of somebody else's sin toward us, when we sin against somebody else, all of those moments, I believe, are cleansing moments that the Lord is looking to show us, I want to cleanse you. I want to wash you with my son's blood. And your sins will be what? Whiter than snow. Hard for us to picture this, but this is what's offered to us. All of our past sins, all of our present sins, and all of our future sins. All of it. Paid. Cleansed. And now we get to be, the Bible tells us, the children of God. See, it would be something if God just removed the debt. And then said, okay, go on your little merry little way. You don't have a debt against me anymore. But he doesn't do that. He says, I'm removing your debt and I'm also joining you to me. Oh, it would have been enough for him just to absolve us through his son's death, but that's not the the whole point. He joins us to himself. He reconciles us. He removes the hostility. He's the one coming after us. He brings it together, and then he gives us the privilege of crying out, Abba, Father. Do you know angels can't do that? But we have an intimacy with the Heavenly Father that is to be so closely felt that we know, God, I'm yours. I've been adopted. He gives us the spirit of adoption. No longer under the the name of sin, but now under the name of Christ, we have an identity change, a name change. That's why Paul's able to say the old things have passed away. Everything's new. Because you're a new creature. And the fruit of reconciliation is now leading us to greater purification called sanctification, becoming more and more holy, becoming like Christ. 
sanctification. And Romans 6 lets us know that. Paul lets us know that, look, this fruit, you've been joined to God. That's the fruit. There's a reconciliation. Now what you do with that is you experience more cleansing, more purification, and it's an eternal life. We have access to God. Being in his presence, with being blameless and with great joy, we can now approach God's throne with confidence, the writer of Hebrews tells us. And find, not just approach with confidence, but find grace, mercy, help in our time of need. When we as children of God experience this reconciliation, truly a fountain is open to us. Rock of Ages had this foul to your flout, easy for me to say, not a flout, fount, foul to your fount, I fly. It's a tongue twister. Try to say that a few times fast. But let's, let's explore this fountain a little bit. Turn to Zechariah, the Old Testament, part of the short prophetic books toward the end of the Old Testament. It's actually second to last. So if you look at Malachi right before Matthew, you'll find, take a left, you'll get Zechariah. This is going to show us here, this, the prophet Zechariah. There were many scriptures that were fulfilled from Zechariah in the period from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. And we're going to look at the, the plan that's coming together for God. Is the, the, the words of my famous friend Pete Jefferson. I love it when a plan comes together. Look at verse 10. Zechariah 12, verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. God is letting them know, you have hurt me because of your sins. You have pierced me because of your sins. But there will be a day that I will give you a desire for grace and mercy. I will call you to myself. You will look on him whom you have pierced. And then look, chapter 13, verse 1 is actually, I don't know if your Bible does this, but it's the last sentence to this paragraph. On that day, That day they will look on him whom they have pierced. There shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. God has this in mind. He lets us know this is what's coming through the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's letting us know this is what's coming. I'm opening up a fountain to you, the same fountain that you ignored. We learn in Jeremiah 2, verse 13, that the people of God had created two evils. One, they forsook the fountain of living water. And they hewed out cisterns for themselves. Cisterns that could not hold water. All the water just seeped through. All of our desires for counterfeit gods, it just seeps away, leaves us wanting for more. But we, we too have gone through a forsaking of the fountain of life, but now this fountain is being restored. And in this fountain, we find purification. If you can turn there fast, Hebrews 9, if not, you can just listen. Hebrews 9, 11. 
But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, listen to this, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify this blood, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Jesus, with his shed blood, has inaugurated a new covenant which we celebrate when we do communion. The blood of the new covenant, what's that mean? We have been reconciled to God and we share from one loaf. Jesus himself, the body himself, the body of Christ, we remember, we celebrate. We also learn from Colossians 1.22 that in this purification, we become holy and blameless. Jesus presenting us as his bride to the Father. Holy and blameless. And with, Jude says, with great joy. 2 Corinthians 5. We also find most gloriously forgiveness of sin and a righteousness that's not our own that was purchased for us. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Here's here's the beauty of it. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In order for us to be in God's presence, there has to be a cleansing. In order for us to continue in God's presence, that cleansing has to last. And that cleansing lasts with the righteousness that's counted toward us. A righteousness we never worked for, we never earned. It was granted. It was counted toward us because of Christ's sacrifice. Oh, I want to spend a long time in heaven contemplating that. Because I just don't get it. I'll be smart enough then to be able to get it. But we'll have eternity. Here, this righteousness is in God's sight. We become the righteousness of God. And then also we have purification. We have forgiveness and righteousness. And we also, Romans 5, we have peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope 
of the glory of God. We have peace with God. And this, today we have a peace that has more of a negative term. For us, peace means without hostility. It means without strife, without the bad stuff happening. That's peaceful to us. We're in peace times now, meaning we're not at war. But the biblical concept of peace, particularly from the Old Testament, the word shalom, it's not, it's not a peace that it means without something. It's a peace that means, oh, you got something. It's a very positive term. And this is what it means, uh, trying to be specific, because it, it, it encompasses a lot. It's a term that, that's for the active presence of God toward us, being rich and full of blessing. So when in the Hebrew culture, as they greet one another with shalom, it's not saying, I hope not to get in a fight with you. They're saying, shalom, I trust God's active presence in your life, being good to you, being rich to you, and giving you full blessing. That's the peace we have with God. He's not just removed the hostility, he's replaced it with the lavishing of his grace, a lavishing of his love, of his richness and kindness, of all the blessing that comes with being his child. Now, this purification, this forgiveness, this peace with God, we, we get to come to the fountain of God and we get to be cleansed and we get to drink. And follow this picture line with me. Genesis chapter four Abel's blood, after he had been killed, God goes to Cain and says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Genesis 4, Good Friday. All the cries of Christ. His blood being shed. We go all the way to Revelation 22, 1. You know what we find? That there is a fountain of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and the lamb. All that blood that was crying out, all the blood that the cries of Christ encompassed, all the hell that he felt and endured on our behalf so we could come and enjoy the fountain of life and be cleansed from our sins in an ongoing cleansing to be made perfect. For that day we will sit with him, stand with him as we behold his presence right there and able to drink the water of life that comes from the lamb forever all because of this day when that was purchased for us there is there's always a response that we need to have we we hope as we uh, preach the word i hope as i preach the word i can exalt the savior enough just for us to stand and look and say wow but there are particulars of how we need to take from that. Now, we should be more in awe of the Savior than we, it, than we are occupied with the things around us. But we know we get occupied with everything around us first. That's why our eyes always need to be drawn outward and upward to see the exalted Christ. To see the lamb that was, is standing. And John says in Revelation that he's a lamb standing that has been slain. I can't picture that. But we know it's Jesus. That's who we get to look at. But our response, a few different things in different categories of where you might be in your life, maybe the Lord would can, uh, communicate something particularly to you, but in reconciliation being open to us, there is a responsibility and a response that we receive it. And we receive it by faith. It is a free gift, 
but we enact that free gift and we take that free gift by faith. Saying, Jesus, I truly believe you died in my place, took my guilt, took my wrath, so I could be reconciled with the Father. We receive that by faith and we experience the newness of what's going on. Others of us might just need to be reminded of this great work. When we get so occupied with the temporary and the temporary is calling out to us more than the eternal, we need to be reminded of the eternal. That we, two ways to be reminded. One, that our, our performance doesn't dictate God's fatherness to us. He's our father. And we go to him. We go to him when things are going great. And we go to him when things are stinky. And we're sick of ourselves. And we're sick of the sin pattern. Because there is a call to come. Come and drink. Come and drink. There's hope for change. We can, uh, and it would be my concern that if there's anybody, anybody that would think that I will never ever overcome this aspect of my life, whether it's a a personality trait or a sinful habitual pattern, that we resign ourselves and say, this is never going to stop. No. That's when we need to say, Jesus, I need to see you again. I need to be reminded of reconciliation. I need to be reminded of all that you've done. I need hope for change, hope for sanctification, hope for a continued cleansing. And God will meet us and, and help us with that. When it, it's, I do think that it would be, reconciliation I think is something that uh, is, is a boxing glove to destroy the enemy. You know, we could be thinking, okay, how do I fight the devil? How do I fight the devil? You know, one way, just remember that you're joined with God. He's on your side. And just as we didn't work our way into this, we can't work our way out. He secures it. He gives it. But also, being reminded of this work of Christ has to also uh, encourage us in the midst of suffering. In the midst of things going on in our lives where we truly have no idea what's going on or why maybe asking God the question, are you there? I don't feel anything. Please, this morning, be, and tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, be reminded you are reconciled with God because of Christ's work. And we also, in relating with one another, our response needs to be that we have the ministry of reconciliation with one another. You know what? We set up barriers and hostility for much lesser reasons than what we have offended God with. And yet God comes and annihilates the barrier. And he annihilated the barrier. Ephesians 2 says that Jesus took all of that hostility and that barrier and he destroyed it in himself. So we too can humble ourselves and be reconciled with those around us and not fight so much for our feelings, not fight so much for our pride in being right, but we can humble ourselves to say, no, the gospel needs to be biggest in our relationship. Reconciliation, even though we might have to work out some understandings of this, we need to be reconciled. Work toward that. Not finally, but in my little list, finally our response is to rejoice. Uh, Romans 5, 11 says this more than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There is a proper rejoicing when we think of all that Christ is, all that he has, and being his children, we get that. 
all that Christ is, all that he has, when we are joined to him, we get to experience. There is a, on the back of your notes, a hymn written by William Cooper. I know it looks Cowper, but it's actually pronounced Cooper. The British do that sometimes. I'll tell you a little bit about William Cooper. William Cooper lived in the 1700s, early 1800s. He, he battled depression all of his life, from a young boy into a grown man into his old age. He actually lived with John Newton, who was, the, who was a pastor in England at that time, and he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. They lived together, and what they would do, one of the ways that John Newton would help William Cooper is that they would have a little fun competition to see who could write more hymns. And it's called The Only Hymns, and there's about 360 of them, written over about three or four years. But you know what John Newton found? John Newton found that as he could help William Cooper think about the greatness of God, it helped alleviate the dark seasons of depression. Because you know what depressed William Cooper the most? He couldn't figure out how God could forgive him of all of his sins. And he came to Zechariah 13.1 and he writes this hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there have I as vile as he washed all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Lord, I believe thou hast prepared, unworthy though I be, for me a blood-bought free reward, a golden harp for me. Tis strung and tuned for endless years. Formed by power divine to sound in God the Father's ears no other name but thine. Can that be the therapy for our souls? As we just say the name Jesus. Jesus. Now there are times in suffering, there are times in seasons of our lives, really that's all we've got. Jesus, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world so I could be reconciled to God. Let's stand up and rejoice together.